Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Book 4, Chapter 12 of War and Peace, Volume 2 by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 4, Chapter 12 Iogles were the most enjoyable balls in Moscow. So said the mothers as they watched their young people executing their newly learned steps, and so said the youths and maidens themselves as they danced till they were ready to drop, and so said the grown-up young men and women who came to these balls with an air of condescension and found them most enjoyable. That year two marriages had come of these balls. The two pretty young princesses Gorchakov met suitors there and were married, and so further increased the fame of these dances. What distinguished them from others was the absence of host or hostess, and the presence of the good-natured Iogel, flying about like a feather and bowing according to the rules of his art, as he collected the tickets from all his visitors. There was the fact that only those came who wished to dance and amuse themselves as girls of thirteen and fourteen do, who are wearing long dresses for the first time. With scarcely any exceptions they all were or seemed to be pretty, so rapturous were their smiles and so sparkling their eyes. Sometimes the best of the pupils, of whom Natasha, who was exceptionally graceful, was first, even danced the pas de chal. But at this last ball only the Ecossais, the Anglais, and the Mazurka, which was just coming into fashion, were danced. Iogol had taken a ballroom in Bezukhov's house, and the ball, as every one said, was a great success. There were many pretty girls, and the Rostov girls were among the prettiest. They were both particularly happy and gay. That evening, proud of Dolokhov's proposal, her refusal, and her explanation with Nicholas, Sonia twirled about before she left home so that the maid could hardly get her hair plaited, and she was transparently radiant with impulsive joy. Natasha, no less proud of her first long dress and of being at a real ball, was even happier. They were both dressed in white muslin with pink ribbons. Natasha fell in love the very moment she entered the ballroom. She was not in love with anyone in particular, but with everyone. Whatever person she happened to look at, she was in love with for that moment. "'Oh, how delightful it is!' she kept saying, running up to Sonia. Nicholas and Denisov were walking up and down, looking with kindly patronage at the dancers. "'How sweet she is! She will be a real beauty!' said Denisov. Who? Countess Natasha, answered Denisov. And how she dances! What grace! he said again after a pause. Who are you talking about? About your sister, ejaculated Denisov testily. Rostov smiled. My dear Count, you were one of my best pupils. You must dance, said little Iogel, coming up to Nicholas. Look how many charming young ladies!" He turned with the same request to Denisov, who was also a former pupil of his. "'No, my dear fellow,' 
I will be a wallflower," said Denisov. Don't you recollect what bad use I made of your lessons?" Oh, no, said Iogo, hastening to reassure him. You were only inattentive, but you had talent. Oh, yes, you had talent. The band struck up the newly introduced mazurka. Nicholas could not refuse Iogo and asked Sonia to dance. Denisov sat down by the old ladies and, leaning on his sabre and beating time with his foot, told them something funny and kept them amused, while he watched the young people dancing. Iogo with Natasha, his pride and his best pupil, were the first couple. Noiselessly, skillfully stepping with his little feet in low shoes, Iogo flew first across the hall with Natasha, who, though shy, went on carefully executing her steps. Denisov did not take his eyes off her, and beat time with his sabre in a way that clearly indicated that if he was not dancing it was because he would not and not because he could not. In the middle of a figure he beckoned to Rostov, who was passing. "'This is not at all the thing,' he said. "'What sort of Polish mazooka is this? But she does dance splendidly.' Knowing that Denisov had a reputation even in Poland for the masterly way in which he danced the mazurka, Nicholas ran up to Natasha. "'Go and choose Denisov. He's a real dancer, a wonder,' he said. When it came to Natasha's turn to choose a partner, she rose and, tripping rapidly across in her little shoes trimmed with bows, ran timidly up to the corner where Denisov sat. She saw that everybody was looking at her and waiting. Nicholas saw that Denisov was refusing, though he smiled delightedly. He ran up to them. "'Please, Vasily Dmitritch,' Natasha was saying, "'do come.' "'Oh, no, let me off, Countess,' Denisov replied. "'Now then, Vaska,' said Nicholas. "'They coax me as if I were Vaska the cat,' said Denisov jokingly. "'I'll sing for you a whole evening,' said Natasha. Oh, the fairy! She can do anything with me," said Denisov, and he unhooked his sabre. He came out from behind the chairs, clasped his partner's hand firmly, threw back his head, and advanced his foot, waiting for the beat. Only on horseback and in the mazurka was Denisov's short stature not noticeable, and he looked the fine fellow he felt himself to be. At the right beat of the music he looked sideways at his partner with a merry and triumphant air suddenly stamped with one foot, bounded from the floor like a ball, and flew round the room taking his partner with him. He glided silently on one foot half across the room, and seeming not to notice the chairs, was dashing straight at them, when suddenly, clinking his spurs and spreading out his legs, he stopped short on his heels, stood so a second, stamped on the spot clanking his spurs, whirled rapidly round, and striking his left heel against his right, flew round again in a circle. Natasha guessed what he meant to do, and abandoning herself to him followed his lead hardly knowing how. First he spun her round, holding her now with his left, now with his right hand. Then falling on one knee, he twirled her round him, and again jumping up, dashed so impetuously forward that it seemed as if he would rush through the whole suite of rooms without drawing breath, and then he suddenly stopped and performed some new and unexpected steps. When, at last, smartly whirling his partner round in front of her chair, he drew up with a click of his spurs and bowed to her. Natasha did not even make him a curtsy. 
She fixed her eyes on him in amazement, smiling as if she did not recognize him. "'What does this mean?' she brought out. Although Iogel did not acknowledge this to be the real Mazurka, everyone was delighted with Denisov's skill. He was asked again and again as a partner. And the old men began smilingly to talk about Poland and the good old days. Denisov, flushed after the Mazurka and mopping himself with his handkerchief, sat down by Natasha and did not leave her for the rest of the evening. End of Book Four, Chapter Twelve Book Four, Chapter Thirteen of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Thirteen. For two days after that, Rostov did not see Dolikov at his own or at Dolikov's home. On the third day, he received a note from him. As I do not intend to be at your house again for reasons you know of, and am going to rejoin my regiment, I am giving a farewell supper tonight to my friends. Come to the English hotel. About ten o'clock, Rostov went to the English hotel straight from the theatre, where he had been with his family and Denisov. He was at once shown to the best room, which Dolikov had taken for that evening. Some twenty men were gathered round a table at which Dolikov sat between two candles. On the table was a pile of gold and paper money, and he was keeping the bank. Rostov had not seen him since his proposal and Sonia's refusal, and felt uncomfortable at the thought of how they would meet. Dolikov's clear, cold glance met Rostov as soon as he entered the door, as though he had long expected him. "'It's a long time since we met,' he said. "'Thanks for coming. I'll just finish dealing, and then Ilyushka will come with his chorus.' "'I called once or twice at your house,' said Rostov, reddening. Dolikov made no reply. "'You may punt,' he said. Rostov recalled at that moment a strange conversation he had once had with Dolikov. "'None but fools trust to luck in play,' Dolikov had then said. "'Or are you afraid to play with me?' Dolikov now asked, as if guessing Rostov's thought. Beneath his smile, Rostov saw in him the mood he had shown at the club dinner, and at other times, when, as if tired of everyday life, he had felt a need to escape from it by some strange and usually cruel action. Rostov felt ill at ease. He tried but failed to find some joke with which to reply to Dolikov's words. But before he had thought of anything, Dolikov, looking straight in his face, said slowly and deliberately so that everyone could hear, "'Do you remember we had a talk about cards? He's a fool who trusts to luck. One should make certain. And I want to try.' "'To try his luck or the certainty?' Rostov asked himself. "'Well, you'd better not play,' Dolikov added and, springing a new pack of cards, said, "'Bank, gentlemen!' Moving the money forward, he prepared to deal. Rostov sat down by his side, and at first did not play. Dolikov kept glancing at him. "'Why don't you play?' he asked. And strange to say, Nicholas felt that he could not help taking up a card, 
putting a small stake on it and beginning to play. "'I have no money with me,' he said. "'I'll trust you.' Rostov staked five roubles on a card and lost, staked again and again lost. Dolikov killed, that is, beat, ten cards of Rostov's running. "'Gentlemen,' said Dolikov, after he had dealt for some time, "'please place your money on the cards, or I may get muddled in the reckoning.' One of the players said he hoped he might be trusted. "'Yes, you might, but I am afraid of getting the accounts mixed. So I ask you to put the money on your cards,' replied Dolikov. "'Don't stint yourself. We'll settle afterwards,' he added, turning to Rostov. The game continued. A waiter kept handing round champagne. All Rostov's cards were beaten, and he had eight hundred roubles scored up against him. He wrote eight hundred roubles on a card, but while the waiter filled his glass he changed his mind and altered it to his usual stake of twenty roubles. "'Leave it,' said Dolikov, though he did not seem to be even looking at Rostov. "'You'll win it back all the sooner. I lose to the others, but win from you. Or are you afraid of me?' he asked again. Rostov submitted. He let the eight hundred remain and laid down a seven of hearts with a torn corner, which he had picked up from the floor. He well remembered that seven afterwards. He laid down the seven of hearts, on which with a broken bit of chalk he had written eight hundred roubles in clear upright figures. He emptied the glass of warm champagne that was handed him, smiled at Dolikov's words, and, with a sinking heart, waiting for a seven to turn up, gazed at Dolikov's hands which held the pack. Much depended on Rostov's winning or losing on that seven of hearts. On the previous Sunday the old count had given his son two thousand roubles, and though he always disliked speaking of money difficulties had told Nicholas that this was all he could let him have till May, and asked him to be more economical this time. Nicholas had replied that it would be more than enough for him, and that he gave his word of honour not to take anything more till the spring. Now only twelve hundred roubles was left of that money, so that this seven of hearts meant for him not only the loss of sixteen hundred roubles, but the necessity of going back on his word. With a sinking heart he watched Dolikov's hands and thought, "'Now then, make haste and let me have this card, and I'll take my cap and drive home to supper with Denisov, Natasha, and Sonia, and will certainly never touch a card again.' At that moment his home life, jokes with Petya, talks with Sonia, duets with Natasha, piquet with his father, and even his comfortable bed in the house on the Povarskaya rose before him with such a vividness, clearness and charm that it seemed as if it were all a lost and unappreciated bliss, long past. He could not conceive that a stupid chance, letting the seven be dealt to the right rather than to the left, might deprive him of all this happiness newly appreciated and newly illumined, and plunge him into the depths of unknown and undefined misery. That could not be, yet he awaited with a sinking heart the movement of Dolokhov's hands. Those broad reddish hands, with hairy wrists visible from under the shirt-cuffs, laid down the pack and took up a glass and a pipe that were handed him. "'So you are not afraid to play with me?' repeated Dolokhov and as if about to tell a good story he put down the cards, 
leaned back in his chair and began deliberately with a smile. "'Yes, gentlemen, I've been told there's a rumor going about Moscow that I'm a sharper, so I advise you to be careful.' "'Come now, deal!' exclaimed Rostov. "'Oh, those Moscow gossips!' said Dolokhov, and he took up the cards with a smile. "'Ah!' Rostov almost screamed, lifting both hands to his head. The seven he needed was lying uppermost, the first card in the pack. He had lost more than he could pay. "'Still, don't ruin yourself,' said Dolokhov, with a side-glance at Rostov, as he continued to deal. End of Book Four, Chapter Thirteen Book Four, Chapter Fourteen of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Fourteen. An hour and a half later, most of the players were but little interested in their own play. The whole interest was concentrated on Rostov. Instead of sixteen hundred roubles, he had a long column of figures scored against him which he had reckoned up to ten thousand, but that now, as he vaguely supposed, must have risen to fifteen thousand. In reality it already exceeded twenty thousand roubles. Dolokhov was no longer listening to stories or telling them, but followed every movement of Rostov's hands, and occasionally ran his eyes over the score against him. He had decided to play until that score reached forty-three thousand. He had fixed on that number because forty-three was the sum of his and Sonya's joint ages. Rostov, leaning his head on both hands, sat at the table which was scrawled over with figures, wet with spilled wine and littered with cards. One tormenting impression did not leave him, that those broad-boned reddish hands with hairy wrists visible from under the shirt-sleeves, those hands which he loved and hated, held him in their power. Six hundred roubles, ace, a corner, a nine. Winning it back's impossible. Oh, how pleasant it was at home! The knave, doubled or quits. It can't be. And why is he doing this to me? Rostov pondered. Sometimes he staked a large sum, but Dolokhov refused to accept it and fixed the stake himself. Nicholas submitted to him and at one moment prayed to God as he had done on the battlefield at the bridge over the ends, and then guessed that the card that came first to hand from the crumpled heap under the table would save him. Now counted the cords on his coat and took a card with that number and tried staking the total of his losses on it. Then he looked round for aid from the other players, or peered at the now cold face of Dolokhov and tried to read what was passing in his mind. He knows, of course, what this loss means to me. He can't want my ruin. Wasn't he my friend? Wasn't I fond of him? But it's not his fault. What's he to do if he has such luck? And it's not my fault either, he thought to himself. I have done nothing wrong. Have I killed anyone, or insulted or wished harm to anyone? Why such a terrible misfortune? And when did it begin? Such a little while ago I came to this table with the thought of winning a hundred roubles to buy that casket for Mama's name-day, and then going home. I was so happy, so free, so light-hearted. 
and I did not realize how happy I was. When did that end, and when did this new, terrible state of things begin? What marked the change? I sat all the time in this same place at this table, chose and placed cards, and watched those broad-boned, agile hands in the same way. When did it happen, and what has happened? I am well and strong, and still the same, and in the same place. No, it can't be. Surely, it will all end in nothing. He was flushed and bathed in perspiration, though the room was not hot. His face was terrible and piteous to see, especially from its helpless efforts to seem calm. The score against him reached the fateful sum of forty-three thousand. Rostov had just prepared a card, by bending the corner of which he meant to double the three thousand just put down to his score, when Dolokhov, slamming down the pack of cards, put it aside and began rapidly adding up the total of Rostov's debt, breaking the chalk as he marked the figures in his clear, bold hand. "'Supper! It's time for supper! And here are the gypsies!' Some swarthy men and women were really entering from the cold outside and saying something in their gypsy accents. Nicholas understood that it was all over, but he said in an indifferent tone, "'Well, won't you go on? I had a splendid card already. As if it were the fun of the game which interested him most.' "'It's all up. I'm lost,' thought he. "'Now a bullet through my brain. That's all that's left me.' And at the same time he said in a cheerful voice, "'Come now, just this one more little card.' "'All right,' said Dolokhov, having finished the edition. "'All right. Twenty-one roubles,' he said, pointing to the figure twenty-one by which the total exceeded the round sum of forty-three thousand, and taking up a pack he prepared to deal. Rostov submissively unbent the corner of his card, and instead of the six thousand he had intended, carefully wrote twenty-one. "'It's all the same to me,' he said. I only want to see whether you will let me win this ten or beat it." Dolokhov began to deal seriously. Oh, how Rostov detested at that moment those hands with their short reddish fingers and hairy wrists, which held him in their power! The ten fell to him. "'You owe forty-three thousand, Count,' said Dolokhov, and, stretching himself, he rose from the table. "'One does get tired sitting so long,' he added. "'Yes, I'm tired, too,' said Rostov. Dolokhov cut him short, as if to remind him that it was not for him to jest. "'When am I to receive the money, Count?' Rostov, flushing, drew Dolokhov into the next room. "'I cannot pay it all immediately. Will you take an I.O.U.?' he said. "'I say, Rostov,' said Dolokhov clearly, smiling and looking Nicholas straight in the eyes. You know the saying, lucky in love, unlucky at cards. Your cousin is in love with you, I know. Oh, it's terrible to feel oneself so in this man's power, thought Rostov. He knew what a shock he would inflict on his father and mother by the news of this loss. He knew what a relief it would be to escape it all and felt that Dolokhov knew that he could save him from all this shame and sorrow, but wanted now to play with him as a cat does with a mouse. "'Your cousin,' Dolokhov started to say, but Nicholas interrupted him. 
My cousin has nothing to do with this, and it's not necessary to mention her!" he exclaimed fiercely. Then when am I to have it? Tomorrow, replied Rostov, and left the room. End of Book Four, Chapter Fourteen Book Four, Chapter Fifteen of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Fifteen to say tomorrow and keep up a dignified tone was not difficult, but to go home alone, see his sister's brother, mother, and father, confess and ask for money he had no right to after giving his word of honor was terrible. At home they had not yet gone to bed. The young people, after returning from the theater, had had supper and were grouped round the clavichord. As soon as Nicholas entered, he was enfolded in that poetic atmosphere of love which pervaded the Rostov household that winter, and now, after Dolikov's proposal and Iogo's ball, seemed to have grown thicker round Sonia and Natasha, as the air does after a thunderstorm. Sonia and Natasha, in the light blue dresses they had worn at the theatre, looked pretty and conscious of it, were standing by the clavichord happy and smiling. Vera was playing chess with Shinshin in the drawing-room. The old countess, waiting for the return of her husband and son, sat playing patience with the old gentlewoman who lived in their house. Denisov, with sparkling eyes and ruffled hair, sat at the clavichord striking chords with his short fingers, his legs thrown back and his eyes rolling as he sang, with his small, husky, but true voice, some verses called Enchantress, which he had composed and to which he was trying to fit music. Enchantress, say to my forsaken lyre, what magic power is this recalls me still? What spark has set my inmost soul on fire? What is this bliss that makes my fingers thrill? He was singing in passionate tones, gazing with his sparkling, black agate eyes at the frightened and happy Natasha. Splendid! Excellent! exclaimed Natasha. Another verse, she said, without noticing Nicholas. Everything's still the same with them, thought Nicholas, glancing into the drawing-room, where he saw Vera and his mother with the old lady. Ah, and here's Nicholas, cried Natasha, running up to him. Is Papa at home? he asked. I'm so glad you've come, said Natasha, without answering him. We are enjoying ourselves. Vasily Dmitritch is staying a day longer for my sake. Did you know? No, Papa is not back yet," said Sonia. Nicholas, have you come? Come here, dear," called the old countess from the drawing-room. Nicholas went to her, kissed her hand, and sitting down silently at her table began to watch her hands arranging the cards. From the dancing-room they still heard the laughter and merry voices trying to persuade Natasha to sing. All right, all right, shouted Denisov. It's no good making excuses now. It's your turn to sing the bakoala. I entreat you. The countess glanced at her silent son. What is the matter? she asked. Oh, nothing, said he, as if weary of being continually asked the same question. Will Papa be back soon? I expect so. Everything's the same with them. They know nothing about it. 
Where am I to go? thought Nicholas, and went again into the dancing-room where the clavichord stood. Sonia was sitting at the clavichord, playing the prelude to Denisov's favorite barcarolle. Natasha was preparing to sing. Denisov was looking at her with enraptured eyes. Nicholas began pacing up and down the room. Why do they want to make her sing? How can she sing? There's nothing to be happy about," thought he. Sonia struck the first chord of the prelude. My God, I'm a ruined and dishonored man. A bullet through my brain is the only thing left me, not singing. His thoughts ran on. Go away? But where to? It's one. Let them sing. He continued to pace the room looking gloomily at Denisov and the girls and avoiding their eyes. "'Nikolenka, what is the matter?' Sonia's eyes fixed on him seemed to ask. She noticed at once that something had happened to him. Nicholas turned away from her. Natasha, too, with her quick instinct, had instantly noticed her brother's condition. But though she noticed it, she was herself in such high spirits at that moment, so far from sorrow, sadness, or self-reproach, that she purposely deceived herself as young people often do. "'No, I am too happy now to spoil my enjoyment by sympathy with anyone's sorrow,' she felt, as she said to herself, "'No, I must be mistaken. He must be feeling happy, just as I am.' "'Now, Sonia,' she said, going to the very middle of the room, where she considered the residence was best. Having lifted her head and let her arms droop lifelessly, as ballet dancers do, Natasha, rising energetically from her heels to her toes, stepped to the middle of the room and stood still. "'Yes, that's me,' she seemed to say, answering the rapt gaze with which Denisov followed her. "'And what is she so pleased about?' thought Nicholas, looking at his sister. Why isn't she dull and ashamed?" Natasha took the first note. Her throat swelled, her chest rose, her eyes became serious. At that moment she was oblivious of her surroundings, and from her smiling lips flowed sounds which anyone may produce at the same intervals and hold for the same time, but which leave you cold a thousand times, and the thousand and first time thrill you and make you weep. Natasha, that winter, had for the first time begun to sing seriously, mainly because Denisov so delighted in her singing. She no longer sang as a child. There was no longer in her singing that comical, childish, painstaking effect that had been in it before. But she did not yet sing well, as all the connoisseurs who heard her said, "'It is not trained, but it is a beautiful voice that must be trained.' only they generally said this some time after she had finished singing. While that untrained voice, with its incorrect breathing and labored transitions, was sounding, even the connoisseur said nothing, but only delighted in it and wished to hear it again. In her voice there was a virginal freshness, an unconsciousness of her own powers, and an as yet untrained velvety softness, which so mingled with her lack of art in singing that it seemed as if nothing in that voice could be altered without spoiling it. "'What is this?' thought Nicholas, listening to her with widely opened eyes. "'What has happened to her? How she is singing today!' And suddenly 
the whole world centered for him on anticipation of the next note, the next phrase, and everything in the world was divided into three beats. O mio credere affetto. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. O mio credere affetto. One, two, three, one. Oh, this senseless life of ours, thought Nicholas. All this misery and money and Dolokhov and anger and honor, it's all nonsense. But this is real. Now then, Natasha, now then, dearest, now then, darling, how will she take that, see? She's taken it. Thank God! And without noticing that he was singing, to strengthen the sea he sung a second, a third below the high note. Ah, God! How fine! Did I really take it? How fortunate! he thought. Oh, how that chord vibrated, and how moved was something that was finest in Rostov's soul! And this something was apart from everything else in the world, and above everything in the world. What were losses and Dolokhov and words of honor? All nonsense! One might kill and rob and yet be happy. End of Book Four, Chapter Fifteen. Book Four, Chapter Sixteen of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Four, Chapter Sixteen. It was long since Rostov had felt such enjoyment from music as he did that day. But no sooner had Natasha finished her barcarolle than reality again presented itself. He got up without saying a word and went downstairs to his own room. A quarter of an hour later the old Count came in from his club, cheerful and contented. Nicholas, hearing him drive up, went to meet him. "'Well, had a good time?' said the old Count, smiling gaily and proudly at his son. Nicholas tried to say yes, but could not, and he nearly burst into sobs. The Count was lighting his pipe and did not notice his son's condition. "'Ah, it can't be avoided,' thought Nicholas, for the first and last time. And suddenly, in the most casual tone, which made him feel ashamed of himself, he said, as if merely asking his father to let him have the carriage to drive to town, "'Papa, I have come on a matter of business. I was nearly forgetting. I need some money.' "'Dear me,' said his father, who is in a specially good humour, "'I told you it would not be enough. How much?' "'Very much,' said Nicholas, flushing and with a stupid careless smile for which he was long unable to forgive himself. I have lost a little, I mean a good deal, a great deal. Forty-three thousand. What? To whom? Nonsense! cried the Count, suddenly reddening with an apoplectic flush over neck and nape as old people do. I promise to pay to-morrow, said Nicholas. Well, said the old Count, spreading out his arms and sinking helplessly on the sofa. "'It can't be helped. It happens to everyone,' said the son, with a bold, free and easy tone, while in his soul he regarded himself as a worthless scoundrel, whose whole life could not atone for his crime. He longed to kiss his father's hands and kneel to beg his forgiveness, 
but said, in a careless and even rude voice, that it happens to everyone. The old Count cast down his eyes on hearing his son's words, and began bustlingly searching for something. "'Yes, yes,' he muttered. "'It will be difficult, I fear, difficult to raise. Happens to everybody.' "'Yes, who has not done it?' And with a furtive glance at his son's face, the Count went out of the room. Nicholas had been prepared for his resistance, but had not at all expected this. "'Papa! Papa!' he called after him, sobbing. "'Forgive me!' And seizing his father's hand, he pressed it to his lips and burst into tears. While father and son were having their explanation, the mother and daughter were having one not less important. Natasha came running to her mother, quite excited. "'Mama! Mama! He has made me—' "'Made what?' "'Made me an offer, Mama! Mama!' she exclaimed. The Countess did not believe her ears. Denisov had proposed. To whom? To this chit of a girl, Natasha, who not so long ago was playing with dolls and who was still having lessons. "'Don't, Natasha. What nonsense!' she said, hoping it was a joke. "'Nonsense, indeed! I am telling you the fact!' said Natasha indignantly. "'I come to ask you what to do, and you call it nonsense!' The Countess shrugged her shoulders. "'If it is true that Monsieur Denisov has made you a proposal, tell him he is a fool, that's all.' "'No, he is not a fool,' replied Natasha indignantly and seriously. "'Well, then, what do you want? You're all in love nowadays. Well, if you are in love, marry him,' said the Countess with a laugh of annoyance. "'Good luck to you.' "'No, Mama. I'm not in love with him. I suppose I'm not in love with him. Well, then, tell him so. Mama, are you cross? Don't be cross, dear. Is it my fault? No. But what is it, my dear? Do you want me to go and tell him? said the Countess, smiling. No, I will do it myself. Only tell me what to say. It's all very well for you said Natasha, with a responsive smile. You should have seen how he said it. I know he did not mean to say it, but it came out accidentally. Well, all the same, you must refuse him. No, I mustn't. I am so sorry for him. He's so nice. Well, then, accept his offer. It's high time for you to be married, answered the Countess sharply and sarcastically. No, Mama, but I'm so sorry for him. I don't know how I'm to say it. And there's nothing for you to say. I shall speak to him myself, said the Countess, indignant that they should have dared to treat this little Natasha as grown up. No, not on my account. I will tell him myself, and you'll listen at the door. And Natasha ran across the drawing-room to the dancing-hall, where Denisov was sitting on the same chair by the clavichord with his face in his hands. He jumped up at the sound of her light step. "'Natalie,' he said, moving with rapid steps toward her, "'decide my fate. It is in your hands.' "'Vasily Dmitritch, I am so sorry for you. No, but you are so nice. But it won't do. Not that.' 
but as a friend I shall always love you." Denisov bent over her hand and she heard strange sounds she did not understand. She kissed his rough curly black head. At this instant they heard the quick rustle of the countess' dress. She came up to them. "'Vasily Dmitritch, I thank you for the honor," she said with an embarrassed voice, though it sounded severe to Denisov. But my daughter is so young, and I thought that, as my son's friend, you would have addressed yourself first to me. In that case you would not have obliged me to give this refusal." "'Countess,' said Denisov, with downcast eyes and a guilty face. He tried to say more, but faltered. Natasha could not remain calm, seeing him in such a plight. She began to sob aloud. "'Countess, I have done wrong,' Denisov went on in an unsteady voice. "'But, believe me, I so adore your daughter and all your family that I would give my life twice over.' He looked at the Countess and, seeing her severe face, said, "'Well, good-bye, Countess,' and kissing her hand, he left the room with quick, resolute strides, without looking at Natasha. Next day Rostov saw Denisov off. He did not wish to stay another day in Moscow. All Denisov's Moscow friends gave him a farewell entertainment at the Gypsies, with the result that he had no recollection of how he was put in the sleigh or of the first three stages of his journey. After Denisov's departure Rostov spent another fortnight in Moscow without going out of the house, waiting for the money his father could not at once raise and he spent most of his time in the girl's room. Sonya was more tender and devoted to him than ever. It was as if she wanted to show him that his losses were an achievement that made her love him all the more, but Nicholas now considered himself unworthy of her. He filled the girl's albums with verses and music, and having at last sent Dolikov the whole forty-three thousand roubles and received his receipt, he left at the end of November without taking leave of any of his acquaintances, to overtake his regiment which was already in Poland. End of Book Four, Chapter Sixteen Book Five, Chapter One of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, eighteen o six o seven, Chapter One. After his interview with his wife, Pierre left for Petersburg. At the Torzhok post station, either there were no horses or the postmaster would not supply them. Pierre was obliged to wait. Without undressing, he lay down on the leather sofa in front of a round table, put his big feet in their overboots on the table, and began to reflect. "'Will you have the portmanteaus brought in, and a bed got ready, and tea?' asked his valet. Pierre gave no answer, for he neither heard nor saw anything. He had begun to think of the last station, and was still pondering on the same question one so important that he took no notice of what went on around him. Not only was he indifferent as to whether he got to Petersburg earlier or later, or whether he secured accommodation at this station, 
but compared to the thoughts that now occupied him, it was a matter of indifference whether he remained there for a few hours or for the rest of his life. The postmaster, his wife, the valet, and a peasant woman selling Torjac embroidery came into the room offering their services. Without changing his careless attitude, Pierre looked at them over his spectacles, unable to understand what they wanted or how they could go on living, without having solved the problems that so absorbed him. He had been engrossed by the same thoughts ever since the day he returned from Sokolniki after the duel and had spent that first agonizing sleepless night. But now, in the solitude of the journey, they seized him with special force. No matter what he thought about, he always returned to these same questions which he could not solve and yet could not cease to ask himself. It was as if the thread of the chief screw which held his life together were stripped, so that the screw could not get in or out, but went on turning uselessly in the same place. The postmaster came in and began obsequiously to beg His Excellency to wait only two hours, when, come what might, he would let His Excellency have the courier-horses. It was plain that he was lying, and only wanted to get more money from the traveller. Is this good or bad? Pierre asked himself. It is good for me, bad for another traveller, and for himself it's unavoidable, because he needs money for food. The man said an officer had once given him a thrashing for letting a private traveller have the courier-horses, but the officer thrashed him because he had to get on as quickly as possible. And I, continued Pierre, shot Dolokhov because I considered myself injured, and Louis the Sixteenth was executed because they considered him a criminal, and a year later they executed those who executed him, also for some reason. What is bad? What is good? What should one love and what hate? What does one live for? And what am I? What is life and what is death? What power governs all?" There was no answer to any of these questions, except one, and that not a logical answer and not at all a reply to them. The answer was, you'll die and all will end. You'll die and know all or cease asking. But dying was also dreadful. The Torjak peddler woman, in a whining voice, went on offering her wares, especially a pair of goatskin slippers. I have hundreds of roubles I don't know what to do with, and she stands in her tattered cloak looking timidly at me, he thought. And what does she want the money for? As if that money could add a hair's breadth to happiness or peace of mind. Can anything in the world make her or me less a prey to evil and death? Death which ends all and must come to-day or to-morrow, at any rate, in an instant as compared with eternity. And again he twisted the screw with the stripped thread, and again it turned uselessly in the same place. His servant handed him a half-cut novel, in the form of letters by Madame de Souza. He began reading about the sufferings and virtuous struggles of a certain Emilie de Mansfeld. And why did she resist her seducer when she loved him? he thought. God could not have put into her heart an impulse that was against his will. My wife, as she once was, 
did not struggle, and perhaps she was right. Nothing has been found out, nothing discovered. Pierre again said to himself, All we can know is that we know nothing, and that's the height of human wisdom. Everything within and around him seemed confused, senseless, and repellent. Yet in this very repugnance to all his circumstances, Pierre found a kind of tantalizing satisfaction. "'I make bold to ask Your Excellency to move a little for this gentleman,' said the postmaster, entering the room followed by another traveller, also detained for lack of horses. The newcomer was a short, large-boned, yellow-faced, wrinkled old man, with grey bushy eyebrows overhanging bright eyes of an indefinite greyish colour. Pierre took his feet off the table, stood up and lay down on a bed that had been got ready for him, glancing now and then at the newcomer, who, with a gloomy and tired face, was wearily taking off his wraps with the aid of his servant, and not looking at Pierre. With a pair of felt boots on his thin, bony legs, and keeping on a worn, nankeen-covered sheepskin coat, the traveller sat down on the sofa, leaned back his big head with its broad temples and close-cropped hair, and looked at Bezukhov. The stern, shrewd, and penetrating expression of that look struck Pierre. He felt a wish to speak to the stranger, but by the time he had made up his mind to ask him a question about the roads, the traveller had closed his eyes. His shriveled old hands were folded, and on the finger of one of them Pierre noticed a large cast-iron ring with a seal representing a death's head. The stranger sat without stirring, either resting, or, as it seemed to Pierre, sunk in profound and calm meditation. His servant was also a yellow, wrinkled old man, without beard or moustache, evidently not because he was shaven, but because they had never grown. This active old servant was unpacking the traveller's canteen and preparing tea. He brought in a boiling samovar. When everything was ready, the stranger opened his eyes, moved to the table, filled a tumbler with tea for himself and one for the beardless old man to whom he passed it. Pierre began to feel a sense of uneasiness, and the need, even the inevitability, of entering into conversation with this stranger. The servant brought back his tumbler turned upside down, to indicate he did not want more tea, with an unfinished bit of nibbled sugar, and asked if anything more would be wanted. "'No, give me the book,' said the stranger. The servant handed him a book which Pierre took to be a devotional work, and the traveller became absorbed in it. Pierre looked at him. All at once the stranger closed the book, putting in a marker and again, leaning with his arms on the back of the sofa, sat in his former position with his eyes shut. Pierre looked at him, and had not time to turn away, when the old man, opening his eyes, fixed his steady and severe gaze straight on Pierre's face. Pierre felt confused and wished to avoid that look, but the bright old eyes attracted him irresistibly. End of Book 5, Chapter 1《Book 5, Chapter 2 of War and Peace, Volume 2 by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Chapter 2
I have the pleasure of addressing Count Bezukhov, if I am not mistaken," said the stranger in a deliberate and loud voice. Pierre looked silently and inquiringly at him over his spectacles. "'I have heard of you, my dear sir,' continued the stranger, "'and of your misfortune.' He seemed to emphasize the last word, as if to say, "'Yes, misfortune. Call it what you please. I know that what happened to you in Moscow was a misfortune.' I regret it very much, my dear sir." Pierre flushed, and, hurriedly putting his legs down from the bed, bent forward toward the old man with a forced and timid smile. "'I have not referred to this out of curiosity, my dear sir, but for greater reasons.' He paused, his gaze still on Pierre, and moved aside on the sofa by way of inviting the other to take a seat beside him. Pierre felt reluctant to enter into conversation with this old man, but submitting to him involuntarily, came up and sat down beside him. "'You are unhappy, my dear sir,' the stranger continued. "'You are young, and I am old. I should like to help you as far as lies in my power.' "'Oh, yes,' said Pierre, with a forced smile. "'I am very grateful to you. Where are you travelling from?' The stranger's face was not genial, it was even cold and severe, but in spite of this both the face and words of his new acquaintance were irresistibly attractive to Pierre. "'But if for any reason you don't feel inclined to talk to me,' said the old man, "'say so, my dear sir.' And he suddenly smiled, in an unexpected and tenderly paternal way. "'Oh, no, not at all. On the contrary, I am very glad to make your acquaintance.' said Pierre. And again, glancing at the stranger's hands, he looked more closely at the ring with its skull, a Masonic sign. "'Allow me to ask,' he said, "'are you a Mason?' "'Yes, I belong to the Brotherhood of the Freemasons,' said the stranger, looking deeper and deeper into Pierre's eyes. "'And in their name, and my own, I hold out a brotherly hand to you.' I am afraid," said Pierre, smiling, and wavering between the confidence the personality of the Freemason inspired in him and his own habit of ridiculing the Masonic beliefs, I am afraid I am very far from understanding—how am I to put it?—I am afraid my way of looking at the world is so opposed to yours that we shall not understand one another." "'I know your outlook,' said the Mason, and the view of life you mention which, you think, is the result of your own mental efforts, is the one held by the majority of people, and is the invariable fruit of pride, indolence, and ignorance. Forgive me, my dear sir, but if I had not known it I should not have addressed you. Your view of life is a regrettable delusion." "'Just as I may suppose you to be deluded,' said Pierre, with a faint smile. "'I should never dare to say that I know the truth,' said the Mason whose words struck Pierre more and more by their precision and firmness. No one can attain to truth by himself. Only by laying stone on stone, with the cooperation of all, by the millions of generations from our forefather Adam to our own times, is that temple reared which is to be a worthy dwelling-place of the great God," he added, and closed his eyes. "'I ought to tell you that I do not believe—do not believe in God said Pierre, regretfully and with an effort, feeling it essential to speak the whole truth. 
The mason looked intently at Pierre, and smiled as a rich man with millions in hand, might smile at a poor fellow who told him that he, poor man, had not the five roubles that would make him happy. "'Yes, you do not know him, my dear sir,' said the mason. "'You cannot know him. You do not know him, and that is why you are unhappy.' "'Yes, yes, I am unhappy,' assented Pierre. "'But what am I to do?' You know him not, my dear sir, and so you are very unhappy. You do not know him, but he is here, he is in me, he is in my words, he is in thee, and even in those blasphemous words thou hast just uttered," pronounced the mason in a stern and tremulous voice. He paused and sighed, evidently trying to calm himself. "'If he were not,' he said quietly, you and I would not be speaking of him, my dear sir. Of what, of whom are we speaking? Whom hast thou denied?" he suddenly asked with exulting austerity and authority in his voice. Who invented him, if he did not exist? Whence came thy conception of the existence of such an incomprehensible being? Didst thou, and why did the whole world, conceive the idea of the existence of such an incomprehensible being? a being all-powerful, eternal, and infinite in all his attributes." He stopped and remained silent for a long time. Pierre could not and did not wish to break this silence. "'He exists, but to understand him is hard,' the mason began again, looking not at Pierre but straight before him, and turning the leaves of his book with his old hands, which from excitement he could not keep still. If it were a man whose existence thou didst doubt, I could bring him to thee, could take him by the hand and show him to thee. But how can I, an insignificant mortal, show his omnipotence, his infinity, and all his mercy to one who is blind, or who shuts his eyes that he may not see or understand him, and may not see or understand his own vileness and sinfulness?" He paused again. Who art thou? Thou dreamest that thou art wise because thou couldst utter those blasphemous words," he went on with a somber and scornful smile, and thou art more foolish and unreasonable than a little child, who, playing with the parts of a skillfully made watch, dares to say that, as he does not understand its use, he does not believe in the master who made it. To know him is hard. For ages, from our forefather Adam to our own day, we labor to attain that knowledge and are still infinitely far from our aim. But in our lack of understanding we see only our weakness and his greatness." Pierre listened with a swelling heart, gazing into the mason's face with shining eyes, not interrupting or questioning him, but believing with his whole soul what the stranger said. Whether he accepted the wise reasoning contained in the mason's words, or believed as a child believes in the speaker's tone of conviction and earnestness, or the tremor of the speaker's voice, which sometimes almost broke, or those brilliant aged eyes grown old in this conviction, or the calm firmness and certainty of his vocation, which radiated from his whole being and which struck Pierre especially by contrast with his own dejection and hopelessness, at any rate, Pierre longed with his whole soul to believe, and he did believe, and felt a joyful sense of comfort, regeneration, and return to life. 
He is not to be apprehended by reason, but by life," said the mason. "'I do not understand,' said Pierre, feeling with dismay doubts reawakening. He was afraid of any want of clearness, any weakness in the mason's arguments. He dreaded not to be able to believe in him. "'I don't understand,' he said, "'how it is that the mind of man cannot attain the knowledge of which you speak.' The mason smiled with his gentle fatherly smile. "'The highest wisdom and truth are like the purest liquid we may wish to imbibe,' he said. "'Can I receive that pure liquid into an impure vessel and judge of its purity? Only by the inner purification of myself can I retain in some degree of purity the liquid I receive.' "'Yes, yes, that is so,' said Pierre joyfully. The highest wisdom is not founded on reason alone, not on those worldly sciences of physics, history, chemistry, and the like, into which intellectual knowledge is divided. The highest wisdom is one. The highest wisdom is but one science, the science of the whole, the science explaining the whole creation and man's place in it. To receive that science, it is necessary to purify and renew one's inner self, and so, before one can know, it is necessary to believe and to perfect one's self. And to attain this end, we have the light called conscience that God has implanted in our souls." "'Yes, yes,' assented Pierre. "'Look, then, at thy inner self with the eyes of the Spirit, and ask thyself whether thou art content with thyself. What hast thou attained relying on reason only? What art thou?' You are young, you are rich, you are clever, you are well-educated. And what have you done with all these good gifts? Are you content with yourself and with your life?" "'No, I hate my life,' Pierre muttered, wincing. "'Thou hatest it. Then change it, purify thyself. And as thou art purified, thou wilt gain wisdom. Look at your life, my dear sir. How have you spent it? in riotous orgies and debauchery, receiving everything from society and giving nothing in return. You have become the possessor of wealth. How have you used it? What have you done for your neighbor? Have you ever thought of your tens of thousands of slaves? Have you helped them physically and morally? No. You have profited by their toil to lead a profligate life. That is what you have done." Have you chosen a post in which you might be of service to your neighbor? No. You have spent your life in idleness. Then you married, my dear sir, took on yourself responsibility for the guidance of a young woman. And what have you done? You have not helped her to find the way of truth, my dear sir, but have thrust her into an abyss of deceit and misery. A man offended you, and you shot him and you say you do not know God and hate your life. There is nothing strange in that, my dear sir." After these words, the mason, as if tired by his long discourse, again leaned his arms on the back of the sofa and closed his eyes. Pierre looked at that aged, stern, motionless, almost lifeless face, and moved his lips without uttering a sound. He wished to say, Yes, a vile, idle, vicious life but dared not break the silence. 
The mason cleared his throat huskily, as old men do, and called his servant. "'How about the horses?' he asked, without looking at Pierre. "'The exchange horses have just come,' answered the servant. "'Will you not rest here?' "'No. Tell them to harness.' Can he really be going away leaving me alone without having told me all, and without promising to help me?" thought Pierre, rising with downcast head. And he began to pace the room, glancing occasionally at the mason. Yes, I never thought of it, but I have led a contemptible and profligate life, though I did not like it and did not want to, thought Pierre. But this man knows the truth and, if he wished to, could disclose it to me." Pierre wished to say this to the mason, but did not dare to. The traveller, having packed his things with his practised hands, began fastening his coat. When he had finished, he turned to Bezukhov, and said, in a tone of indifferent politeness, "'Where are you going to now, my dear sir?' "'I? I am going to Petersburg,' answered Pierre, in a childlike, hesitating voice. I thank you. I agree with all you have said. But do not suppose me to be so bad. With my whole soul I wish to be what you would have me be, but I have never had help from anyone. But it is I, above all, who am to blame for everything. Help me, teach me, and perhaps I may." Pierre could not go on. He gulped and turned away. The mason remained silent for a long time, evidently considering. "'Help comes from God alone,' he said. "'But such measure of help as our order can bestow, it will render you, my dear sir. You are going to Petersburg. Hand this to Count Willarski.' He took out his notebook and wrote a few words on a large sheet of paper folded in four. "'Allow me to give you a piece of advice. When you reach the capital, First of all, devote some time to solitude and self-examination, and do not resume your former way of life. And now I wish you a good journey, my dear sir," he added, seeing that his servant had entered. And success. The traveller was Joseph Alexeyev Bazdeev, as Pierre saw from the postmaster's book. Bazdeev had been one of the best-known Freemasons and Martinists, even in Novikov's time. For a long while after he had gone, Pierre did not go to bed or order horses, but paced up and down the room, pondering over his vicious past and with a rapturous sense of beginning anew, pictured to himself the blissful, irreproachable, virtuous future that seemed to him so easy. It seemed to him that he had been vicious only because he had somehow forgotten how good it is to be virtuous. Not a trace of his former doubts remained in his soul. He firmly believed in the possibility of the brotherhood of men, united in the aim of supporting one another in the path of virtue, and that is how Freemasonry presented itself to him. End of Book 5, Chapter 2「Book 5, Chapter 3 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Three. On reaching Petersburg, Pierre did not let anyone know of his arrival, 
He went nowhere and spent whole days in reading Thomas A. Kempis, whose book had been sent him by someone unknown. One thing he continually realized as he read that book, the joy, hitherto unknown to him, of believing in the possibility of attaining perfection, and in the possibility of active brotherly love among men, which Joseph Alexeyev had revealed to him. A week after his arrival, the young Polish Count Wolarski, whom Pierre had known slightly in Petersburg society, came into his room one evening in the official and ceremonious manner in which Dolokhov II had called on him, and, having closed the door behind him and satisfied himself that there was nobody else in the room, addressed Pierre. "'I have come to you with a message and an offer, Count,' he said without sitting down. "'A person of very high standing in our brotherhood has made application for you to be received into our order before the usual term, and has proposed to me to be your sponsor. I consider it a sacred duty to fulfill that person's wishes. Do you wish to enter the Brotherhood of Freemasons under my sponsorship?" The cold, austere tone of this man, whom he had almost always before met at balls, amiably smiling in the society of the most brilliant women, surprised Pierre. "'Yes, I do wish it,' said he. Wolarski bowed his head. "'One more question, Count,' he said, which I beg you to answer in all sincerity. Not as a future Mason, but as an honest man. Have you renounced your former convictions? Do you believe in God?' Pierre considered. "'Yes, yes, I believe in God,' he said. "'In that case,' began Wolarski but Pierre interrupted him. "'Yes, I do believe in God,' he repeated. "'In that case we can go,' said Wilarski. "'My carriage is at your service.' Wilarski was silent throughout the drive. To Pierre's inquiries as to what he must do and how he should answer, Wilarski only replied that brothers more worthy than he would test him, and that Pierre had only to tell the truth. Having entered the courtyard of a large house where the lodge had its headquarters, and having ascended a dark staircase, they entered a small, well-lit anteroom where they took off their cloaks without the aid of a servant. From there they passed into another room. A man in strange attire appeared at the door. Wilarski, stepping toward him, said something to him in French in an undertone, and then went up to a small wardrobe in which Pierre noticed garments such as he had never seen before. Having taken a kerchief from the cupboard, Wolarski bound Pierre's eyes with it and tied it in a knot behind, catching some hairs painfully in the knot. Then he drew his face down, kissed him, and taking him by the hand, led him forward. The hairs tied in the knot hurt Pierre, and there were lines of pain on his face and a shamefaced smile. His huge figure, with arms hanging down and with a puckered, though smiling face, moved after Wolarski with uncertain, timid steps. Having led him about ten paces, Wolarski stopped. "'Whatever happens to you,' he said, "'you must bear it all manfully if you have firmly resolved to join our brotherhood.' Pierre nodded affirmatively. "'When you hear a knock at the door, you will uncover your eyes,' added Wolarski. "'I wish you courage and success.' and pressing Pierre's hand he went out. Left alone, Pierre went on smiling in the same way. 
Once or twice he shrugged his shoulders and raised his hand to the kerchief, as if wishing to take it off but let it drop again. The five minutes spent with his eyes bandaged seemed to him an hour. His arms felt numb, his legs almost gave way. It seemed to him that he was tired out. He experienced a variety of most complex sensations. He felt afraid of what would happen to him and still more afraid of showing his fear. He felt curious to know what was going to happen and what would be revealed to him, but most of all he felt joyful that the moment had come when he would at last start on that path of regeneration and on the actively virtuous life of which he had been dreaming since he met Joseph Alexeyevich. Loud knocks were heard at the door. Pierre took the bandage off his eyes and glanced around him. The room was in black darkness. Only a small lamp was burning inside something white. Pierre went nearer and saw that the lamp stood on a black table, on which lay an open book. The book was the gospel, and the white thing with the lamp inside was a human skull with its cavities and teeth. After reading the first words of the gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Pierre went round the table and saw a large open box filled with something. It was a coffin with bones inside. He was not at all surprised by what he saw. Hoping to enter on an entirely new life quite unlike the old one, he expected everything to be unusual, even more unusual than what he was seeing. A skull, a coffin, the gospel. It seemed to him that he had expected all this and even more. Trying to stimulate his emotions, he looked around. God, death, love, the brotherhood of man, he kept saying to himself, associating these words with vague yet joyful ideas. The door opened and someone came in. By the dim light, to which Pierre had already become accustomed, he saw a rather short man. Having evidently come from the light into the darkness, the man paused, then moved with cautious steps toward the table and placed on it his small leather-gloved hands. This short man had on a white leather apron, which covered his chest and part of his legs. He had on a kind of necklace above which rose a high white ruffle, outlining his rather long face which was lit up from below. "'For what have you come hither?' asked the newcomer, turning in Pierre's direction at a slight rustle made by the latter. "'Why have you, who do not believe in the truth of the light and who have not seen the light, come here? What do you seek from us? Wisdom, virtue, enlightenment?' At the moment the door opened and the stranger came in, Pierre felt a sense of awe and veneration such as he had experienced in his boyhood at confession. He felt himself in the presence of one socially a complete stranger, yet nearer to him through the brotherhood of man. With bated breath and beating heart he moved toward the redder, by which name the brother who prepared a seeker for entrance into the brotherhood was known. Drawing nearer, he recognized in the redder a man he knew, Smolyaninov, and it mortified him to think that the newcomer was an acquaintance. He wished him simply a brother and a virtuous instructor. For a long time he could not utter a word, so that the redder had to repeat his question. "'Yes, I—I—desire regeneration,' Pierre uttered with difficulty. "'Very well,' said Smolyaninov, and went on at once. 
Have you any idea of the means by which our holy order will help you to reach your aim?" He said quietly and quickly. "'I hope for guidance, help, in regeneration,' said Pierre with a trembling voice and some difficulty in utterance due to his excitement and to being unaccustomed to speak of abstract matters in Russian. "'What is your conception of Freemasonry?' I imagine that Freemasonry is the fraternity and equality of men who have virtuous aims," said Pierre, feeling ashamed of the inadequacy of his words for the solemnity of the moment, as he spoke. I imagine— Good, said the Redder quickly, apparently satisfied with this answer. Have you sought for means of attaining your aim in religion? No. I considered it erroneous, and did not follow it said Pierre, so softly that the redder did not hear him, and asked him what he was saying. "'I have been an atheist,' answered Pierre. "'You are seeking for truth in order to follow its laws in your life. Therefore you seek wisdom and virtue. Is that not so?' said the redder, after a moment's pause. "'Yes, yes,' assented Pierre. The redder cleared his throat, crossed his gloved hands on his breast, and began to speak. Now I must disclose to you the chief aim of our order," he said, and if this aim coincides with yours, you may enter our brotherhood with profit. The first and chief object of our order, the foundation on which it rests and which no human power can destroy, is the preservation and handing on to posterity of a certain important mystery, which has come down to us from the remotest ages, even from the first man a mystery on which perhaps the fate of mankind depends. But since this mystery is of such a nature that nobody can know or use it unless he be prepared by long and diligent self-purification, not everyone can hope to attain it quickly. Hence we have a secondary aim, that of preparing our members as much as possible to reform their hearts, to purify and enlighten their minds by means handed on to us by tradition from those who have striven to attain this mystery, and thereby to render them capable of receiving it. By purifying and regenerating our members, we try, thirdly, to improve the whole human race, offering it in our members an example of piety and virtue, and thereby try with all our might to combat the evil which sways the world. Think this over, and I will come to you again." to combat the evil which sways the world," Pierre repeated, and a mental image of his future activity in this direction rose in his mind. He imagined men such as he had himself been a fortnight ago, and he addressed an edifying exhortation to them. He imagined to himself vicious and unfortunate people, whom he would assist by word and deed, imagined oppressors whose victims he would rescue. Of the three objects mentioned by the redder, this last, that of improving mankind, especially appealed to Pierre. The important mystery mentioned by the redder, though it aroused his curiosity, did not seem to him essential, and the second aim, that of purifying and regenerating himself, did not much interest him because at that moment he felt with delight that he was already perfectly cured of his former faults, and was ready for all that was good. Half an hour later, the redder returned to inform the seeker of the seven virtues, corresponding to the seven steps of Solomon's temple, which every Freemason should cultivate in himself. 
These virtues were, one, discretion, the keeping of the secrets of the order, two, obedience to those of higher ranks in the order, three, morality, four, love of mankind, five, courage, six, generosity, seven, the love of death. In the seventh place, try, by frequent thought of death, the Redder said, to bring yourself to regard it not as a dreaded foe, but as a friend that frees the soul grown weary in the labours of virtue from this distressful life, and leads it to its place of recompense and peace. Yes, that must be so, thought Pierre, when after these words the Redder went away, leaving him to solitary meditation. It must be so but I am still so weak that I love my life, the meaning of which is only now gradually opening before me." But five of the other virtues which Pierre recalled, counting them on his fingers, he felt already in his soul—courage, generosity, morality, love of mankind, and especially obedience—which did not even seem to him a virtue, but a joy. He now felt so glad to be free from his own lawlessness and to submit his will to those who knew the indubitable truth. He forgot what the seventh virtue was and could not recall it. The third time the redder came back more quickly and asked Pierre whether he was still firm in his intention and determined to submit to all that would be required of him. "'I am ready for everything,' said Pierre. "'I must also inform you,' said the redder that our order delivers its teaching, not in words only, but also by other means, which may perhaps have a stronger effect on the sincere seeker after wisdom and virtue than mere words. This chamber with what you see therein should already have suggested to your heart, if it is sincere, more than words could do. You will perhaps also see in your further initiation a like method of enlightenment. Our order imitates the ancient societies that explain their teaching by hieroglyphics. A hieroglyph, said the redder, is an emblem of something not cognizable by the senses, but which possesses qualities resembling those of the symbol. Pierre knew very well what a hieroglyph was, but dared not speak. He listened to the redder in silence, feeling from all he said that his ordeal was about to begin. If you are resolved, I must begin your initiation," said the Redder, coming closer to Pierre. In token of generosity, I ask you to give me all your valuables. But I have nothing here," replied Pierre, supposing that he was asked to give up all he possessed. What you have with you—watch, money, rings. Pierre quickly took out his purse and watch, but could not manage for some time to get the wedding ring off his fat finger. When that had been done, the redder said, "'In token of obedience, I ask you to undress.' Pierre took off his coat, waistcoat, and left boot according to the redder's instructions. The mason drew the shirt-back from Pierre's left breast, and stooping down pulled up the left leg of his trousers to above the knee. Pierre hurriedly began taking off his right boot also, and was going to tuck up the other trouser-leg to save this stranger the trouble but the mason told him that was not necessary, and gave him a slipper for his left foot. With a childlike smile of embarrassment, doubt, and self-derision, which appeared on his face against his will, Pierre stood with his arms hanging down and legs apart, before his brother Redder, 
and awaited his further commands. And now, in token of candor, I ask you to reveal to me your chief passion," said the latter. "'My passion! I have so many,' replied Pierre. "'That passion which more than all others caused you to waver on the path of virtue,' said the mason. Pierre paused, seeking a reply. "'Wine, gluttony, idleness, laziness, irritability, anger, women—' He went over his vices in his mind, not knowing to which of them to give the preeminence. "'Women,' he said in a low, scarcely audible voice. The mason did not move, and for a long time said nothing after this answer. At last he moved up to Pierre, and taking the kerchief that lay on the table, again bound his eyes. "'For the last time I say to you, turn all your attention upon yourself. Put a bridle on your senses and seek blessedness, not in passion, but in your own heart. The source of blessedness is not without us, but within." Pierre had already long been feeling in himself that refreshing source of blessedness which now flooded his heart with glad emotion. End of Book Five, Chapter Three Book Five, Chapter Four, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Four. Soon after this, there came into the dark chamber to fetch Pierre, not the redder, but Pierre's sponsor, Willarski, whom he recognized by his voice. To fresh questions as to the firmness of his resolution, Pierre replied, "'Yes, yes, I agree.' And with a beaming childlike smile, his fat chest uncovered, stepping unevenly and timidly in one slippered and one booted foot, he advanced, while Willarski held a sword to his bare chest. He was conducted from that room along passages that turned backwards and forwards, and was at last brought to the doors of the lodge. Willarski coughed. He was answered by the Masonic knock with mallets, the doors open before them. A bass voice, Pierre was still blindfolded, questioned him as to who he was, when and where he was born and so on. Then he was again led somewhere still blindfolded, and as they went along he was told allegories of the toils of his pilgrimage, of holy friendship, of the eternal architect of the universe, and of the courage with which he should endure toils and dangers. During these wanderings Pierre noticed that he was spoken of now as the seeker, now as the sufferer, and now as the postulant, to the accompaniment of various knockings with mallets and swords. As he was being led up to some object he noticed a hesitation and uncertainty among his conductors. He heard those around him disputing in whispers and one of them insisting that he should be led along a certain carpet. After that they took his right hand, placed it on something, and told him to hold a pair of compasses to his left breast with the other hand, and to repeat after someone who read aloud an oath of fidelity to the laws of the order. The candles were then extinguished and some spirit lighted, as Pierre knew by the smell, and he was told that he would now see the lesser light. The bandage was taken off his eyes and by the faint light of the burning spirit, Pierre, as in a dream, saw several men standing before him, 
wearing aprons like the redders and holding swords in their hands pointed at his breast. Among them stood a man whose white shirt was stained with blood. On seeing this, Pierre moved forward with his breast toward the swords, meaning them to pierce it. But the swords were drawn back from him, and he was at once blindfolded again. "'Now thou hast seen the lesser light,' uttered a voice. Then the candles were relit, and he was told that he would see the full light. The bandage was again removed, and more than ten voices said together, Sic transit gloria mundi. Pierre gradually began to recover himself, and looked about at the room and at the people in it. Round a long table covered with black sat some twelve men in garments like those he had already seen. Some of them Pierre had met in Petersburg society. In the president's chair sat a young man he did not know, with a peculiar cross hanging from his neck. On his right sat the Italian abbe whom Pierre had met at Anna Pavlovna's two years before. There were also present a very distinguished dignitary and a Swiss who had formerly been a tutor at the Karagans. All maintained a solemn silence, listening to the words of the president, who held a mallet in his hand. Led into the wall was a star-shaped light. At one side of the table was a small carpet with various figures worked upon it, at the other was something resembling an altar on which lay a testament and a skull. Round it stood seven large candlesticks like those used in churches. Two of the brothers led Pierre up to the altar, placed his feet at right angles, and bade him lie down, saying that he must prostrate himself at the gates of the temple. "'He must first receive the trowel,' whispered one of the brothers. "'Oh, hush, please,' said another. Pierre, perplexed, looked round with his short-sighted eyes without obeying, and suddenly doubts arose in his mind. "'Where am I? What am I doing? Aren't they laughing at me? Shan't I be ashamed to remember this?' But these doubts only lasted a moment. Pierre glanced at the serious faces of those around, remembered all he had already gone through, and realized that he could not stop halfway. He was aghast at his hesitation, and trying to arouse his former devotional feeling, prostrated himself before the gates of the temple. And really, the feeling of devotion returned to him even more strongly than before. When he had lain there some time, he was told to get up, and a white leather apron, such as the others wore, was put upon him. He was given a trowel and three pairs of gloves, and then the Grand Master addressed him. He told him that he should try to do nothing to stain the whiteness of that apron, which symbolized strength and purity. Then of the unexplained trowel he told him to toil with it to cleanse his own heart from vice, and indulgently to smooth with it the heart of his neighbor. As to the first pair of gloves, a man's, he said that Pierre could not know their meaning, but must keep them. The second pair of man's gloves he was to wear at the meetings, and finally, of the third, a pair of women's gloves, he said, "'Dear brother, these women's gloves are intended for you, too. Give them to the woman whom you shall honor most of all. This gift will be a pledge of your purity of heart to her whom you select to be your worthy helpmeet in masonry.' And after a pause he added, "'But beware, dear brother, that these gloves do not deck hands that are unclean.' While the Grand Master said these last words, it seemed to Pierre that he grew embarrassed. Pierre himself grew still more confused, 
blushed like a child till tears came to his eyes, began looking about him uneasily, and an awkward pause followed. This silence was broken by one of the brethren, who led Pierre up to the rug and began reading to him from a manuscript book an explanation of all the figures on it, the sun, the moon, a hammer, a plumb-line, a trowel, a rough stone and a squared stone, a pillar, three windows, and so on. Then a place was assigned to Pierre, he was shown the signs of the lodge, told the password, and at last was permitted to sit down. The Grand Master began reading the statutes. They were very long, and Pierre, from joy, agitation, and embarrassment, was not in a state to understand what was being read. He managed to follow only the last words of the statutes, and these remained in his mind. "'In our temples we recognize no other distinctions,' read the Grand Master, "'but those between virtue and vice. Beware of making any distinctions which may infringe equality. Fly to a brother's aid whoever he may be, exhort him who goeth astray, raise him that falleth, never bear malice or enmity toward thy brother.' be kindly and courteous. Kindle in all hearts the flame of virtue. Share thy happiness with thy neighbor, and may envy never dim the purity of that bliss. Forgive thy enemy, do not avenge thyself except by doing him good. Thus fulfilling the highest law thou shalt regain traces of the ancient dignity which thou hast lost." He finished, and getting up, embraced and kissed Pierre who, with tears of joy in his eyes, looked round him, not knowing how to answer the congratulations and greetings from acquaintances that met him on all sides. He acknowledged no acquaintances, but saw in all these men only brothers, and burned with impatience to set to work with them. The Grand Master rapped with his mallet. All the masons sat down in their places, and one of them read an exhortation on the necessity of humility. The Grand Master proposed that the last duty should be performed, and the distinguished dignitary who bore the title of Collector of Alms went round to all the brothers. Pierre would have liked to subscribe all he had, but fearing that it might look like pride, subscribed the same amount as the others. The meeting was at an end, and on reaching home Pierre felt as if he had returned from a long journey on which he had spent dozens of years had become completely changed, and had quite left behind his former habits and way of life. End of Book 5, Chapter 4《Book 5, Chapter 5 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Five. The day after he had been received into the lodge, Pierre was sitting at home reading a book and trying to fathom the significance of the square, one side of which symbolized God, another moral things, a third physical things, and the fourth a combination of these. Now and then his attention wandered from the book and the square, and he formed in imagination a new plan of life. On the previous evening at the lodge he had heard that a rumor of his duel had reached the Emperor, and that it would be wiser for him to leave Petersburg. Pierre proposed going to his estates in the south and there attending to the welfare of his serfs. He was joyfully planning this new life when Prince Vasily suddenly entered the room. "'My dear fellow!' 
What have you been up to in Moscow? Why have you quarrelled with Elaine, mon cher? You are under a delusion," said Prince Vasily as he entered. "'I know all about it, and I can tell you positively that Elaine is as innocent before you as Christ was before the Jews.' Pierre was about to reply, but Prince Vasily interrupted him. "'And why didn't you simply come straight to me as to a friend? I know all about it, and understand it all,' he said. "'You behaved as becomes a man who values his honour, perhaps too hastily, but we won't go into that. But consider the position in which you are placing her and me in the eyes of society, and even of the court,' he added, lowering his voice. She is living in Moscow, and you are here. Remember, dear boy," and he drew Pierre's arm downwards, it is simply a misunderstanding. I expect you feel it so yourself. Let us write her a letter at once, and she'll come here and all will be explained, or else, my dear boy, let me tell you it's quite likely you'll have to suffer for it." Prince Vasily gave Pierre a significant look. I know from reliable sources that the Dowager Empress is taking a keen interest in the whole affair. You know, she is very gracious to Elaine." Pierre tried several times to speak, but on one hand Prince Vasily did not let him, and on the other Pierre himself feared to begin to speak in the tone of decided refusal and disagreement in which he had firmly resolved to answer his father-in-law. Moreover, the words of the Masonic statutes be kindly and courteous recurred to him. He blinked, went red, got up and sat down again, struggling with himself to do what was for him the most difficult thing in life, to say an unpleasant thing to a man's face, to say what the other, whoever he might be, did not expect. He was so used to submitting to Prince Vasily's tone of careless self-assurance that he felt he would be unable to withstand it now but he also felt that on what he said now his future depended, whether he would follow the same old road, or that new path so attractively shown him by the Masons, on which he firmly believed he would be reborn to a new life. "'Now, dear boy,' said Prince Vasily playfully, "'say yes, and I'll write to her myself, and we will kill the fatted calf.' But before Prince Vasily had finished his playful speech, Pierre, without looking at him, and with a kind of fury that made him like his father, muttered in a whisper, "'Prince, I did not ask you here. Go, please go.' And he jumped up and opened the door for him. "'Go,' he repeated, amazed at himself and glad to see the look of confusion and fear that showed itself on Prince Vasily's face. "'What's the matter with you? Are you ill?' "'Go,' the quivering voice repeated and Prince Vasily had to go without receiving any explanation. A week later, Pierre, having taken leave of his new friends, the Masons, and leaving large sums of money with them for alms, went away to his estates. His new brethren gave him letters to the Kiev and Odessa Masons, and promised to write to him and guide him in his new activity. End of Book 5, Chapter 5 Book Five, Chapter Six of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Six. The duel between Pierre and Dolokhov was hushed up, 
and in spite of the Emperor's severity regarding duels at that time, neither the principals nor their seconds suffered for it. But the story of the duel, confirmed by Pierre's rupture with his wife, was the talk of society. Pierre, who had been regarded with patronizing condescension when he was an illegitimate son, and petted and extolled when he was the best match in Russia, had sunk greatly in the esteem of society after his marriage, when the marriageable daughters and their mothers had nothing to hope from him, especially as he did not know how and did not wish to court society's favor. Now he alone was blamed for what had happened. He was said to be insanely jealous and subject like his father to fits of bloodthirsty rage. And when, after Pierre's departure, Elaine returned to Petersburg, she was received by all her acquaintances not only cordially, but even with a shade of deference due to her misfortune. When conversation turned on her husband, Elaine assumed a dignified expression, which, with characteristic tact, she had acquired, though she did not understand its significance. This expression suggested that she had resolved to endure her troubles uncomplainingly, and that her husband was a cross laid upon her by God. Prince Vasily expressed his opinion more openly. He shrugged his shoulders when Pierre was mentioned, and pointing to his forehead, remarked, "'A bit touched. I always said so.' "'I said from the first declared Anna Pavlovna, referring to Pierre. "'I said at the time, and before anyone else,' she insisted on her priority, "'that that senseless young man was spoiled by the depraved ideas of these days. I said so even at the time when everybody was in raptures about him, when he had just returned from abroad, and when, if you remember, he posed as a sort of marat at one of my soirees. And how has it ended?' I was against this marriage even then, and foretold all that has happened." Anna Pavlovna continued to give on free evenings the same kind of soirees as before, such as she alone had the gift of arranging, at which she was to be found the cream of really good society, the bloom of the intellectual essence of Petersburg, as she herself put it. Besides this refined selection of society, Anna Pavlovna's receptions were also distinguished by the fact that she always presented some new and interesting person to the visitors, and that nowhere else was the state of the political thermometer of legitimate Petersburg court society so dearly and distinctly indicated. Toward the end of 1806, when all the sad details of Napoleon's destruction of the Prussian army at Jena and Auerstadt, and the surrender of most of the Prussian fortresses had been received, when our troops had already entered Prussia and our second war with Napoleon was beginning, Anna Pavlovna gave one of her soirees. The cream of really good society consisted of the fascinating Elaine, forsaken by her husband, Mortmar, the delightful Prince Hippolyte, who had just returned from Vienna, two diplomatists, the old aunt, a young man referred to in that drawing-room as a man of great merit, un homme de beaucoup de merite a newly appointed maid of honor and her mother, and several other less noteworthy persons. The novelty Anna Pavlovna was setting before her guest that evening was Boris Drubetskoy, who had just arrived as a special messenger from the Prussian army, and was aide-de-camp to a very important personage. The temperature shown by the political thermometer to the company that evening was this. Whatever the European sovereigns and commanders may do to countenance Bonaparte, and to cause me, and us in general, annoyance and mortification, 
our opinion of Bonaparte cannot alter. We shall not cease to express our sincere views on that subject, and can only say to the King of Prussia and others, so much the worse for you. To la value, Georges Dandine, that's all we have to say about it. When Boris, who was to be served up to the guests, entered the drawing-room, almost all the company had assembled, and the conversation, guided by Anna Pavlovna, was about our diplomatic relations with Austria and the hope of an alliance with her. Boris, grown more manly and looking fresh, rosy, and self-possessed, entered the drawing-room elegantly dressed in the uniform of an aide-de-camp, and was duly conducted to pay his respects to the aunt and then brought back to the general circle. Anna Pavlovna gave him her shriveled hand to kiss, and introduced him to several persons whom he did not know, giving him a whispered description of each. Prince Hippolyte Kuragin, charming young fellow. Monsieur Kronk, chargé d'affaires from Copenhagen, a profound intellect. And simply, Mr. Sheetoff, a man of great merit. This of the man usually so described. Thanks to Anna Mikhailovna's efforts, his own tastes, and the peculiarities of his reserved nature, Boris had managed during his service to place himself very advantageously. He was aide-de-camp to a very important personage, had been sent on a very important mission to Prussia, and had just returned from there as a special messenger. He had become thoroughly conversant with that unwritten code with which he had been so pleased at Olmutz, and according to which an ensign might rank incomparably higher than a general, and according to which what was needed for success in the service was not effort or work or courage or perseverance but only the knowledge of how to get on with those who can grant rewards, and he was himself often surprised at the rapidity of his success and at the inability of others to understand these things. In consequence of this discovery, his whole manner of life, all his relations with old friends, all his plans for his future were completely altered. He was not rich, but would spend his last groat to be better dressed than others and would rather deprive himself of many pleasures than allow himself to be seen in a shabby equipage or appear in the streets of Petersburg in an old uniform. He made friends with and sought the acquaintance of only those above him in position, and who could therefore be of use to him. He liked Petersburg and despised Moscow. The remembrance of the Rostovs' house and of his childish love for Natasha was unpleasant to him and he had not once been to see the Rostovs since the day of his departure for the army. To be in Anna Pavlovna's drawing-room he considered an important step up in the service, and he at once understood his role, letting his hostess make use of whatever interest he had to offer. He himself carefully scanned each face, appraising the possibilities of establishing intimacy with each of those present, and the advantages that might accrue. He took the seat indicated to him beside the fair Elaine, and listened to the general conversation. "'Vienna considers the basis of the proposed treaty so unattainable that not even a continuity of most brilliant successes would secure them, and she doubts the means we have of gaining them. That is the actual phrase used by the Vienna cabinet,' said the Danish chargé d'affaires. "'The doubt is flattering,' said the man of profound intellect with a subtle smile we must distinguish between the Vienna cabinet and the Emperor of Austria," said Montmartre. The Emperor of Austria can never have thought of such a thing, 
It is only the cabinet that says it. Ah, my dear Viscount, put in Anna Pavlovna, le Europe. For some reason she called it Europe, as if that were a specially refined French pronunciation which she could allow herself when conversing with a Frenchman. Le Europe ne sera jamais notre allié sincère. Europe will never be our sincere ally. After that, Anna Pavlovna led up to the courage and firmness of the King of Prussia, in order to draw Boris into the conversation. Boris listened attentively to each of the speakers, awaiting his turn, but managed meanwhile to look round repeatedly at his neighbour, the beautiful Elaine, whose eyes several times met those of the handsome young aide-de-camp with a smile. Speaking of the position of Prussia, Anna Pavlovna very naturally asked Boris to tell them about his journey to Glogau, and in what state he found the Prussian army. Boris, speaking with deliberation, told them in pure, correct French many interesting details about the armies and the court, carefully abstaining from expressing an opinion of his own about the facts he was recounting. For some time he engrossed the general attention, and Anna Pavlovna felt that the novelty she had served up was received with pleasure by all her visitors. The greatest attention of all to Boris' narrative was shown by Elaine. She asked him several questions about his journey, and seemed greatly interested in the state of the Prussian army. As soon as he had finished, she turned to him with her usual smile. "'You absolutely must come and see me,' she said in a tone that implied that, for certain considerations he could not know of, this was absolutely necessary. "'On Tuesday between eight and nine, it will give me great pleasure.' Boris promised to fulfill her wish, and was about to begin a conversation with her, when Anna Pavlovna called him away on the pretext that her aunt wished to hear him. "'You know her husband, of course,' said Anna Pavlovna, closing her eyes and indicating Elaine with a sorrowful gesture. "'Ah, she is such an unfortunate and charming woman. Don't mention him before her. Please don't. It is too painful for her.' End of Book 5, Chapter 6《Book Five, Chapter Seven of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Seven. When Boris and Anna Pavlovna returned to the others, Prince Hippolyte had the ear of the company. Bending forward in his armchair, he said, Le roi de Prusse, and having said this, laughed. Everyone turned toward him. Le roi de Prusse, Hippolyte said interrogatively, again laughing, and then calmly and seriously sat back in his chair. Anna Pavlovna waited for him to go on, but as he seemed quite decided to say no more, she began to tell of how at Potsdam the impious Bonaparte had stolen the sword of Frederick the Great. It is the sword of Frederick the Great which I, she began, but Hippolyte interrupted her with the words, Le roi de Prusse, and again, as soon as all turned toward him, excused himself and said no more. Anna Pavlovna frowned. Mortmar, Hippolyte's friend, addressed him firmly. Come now, what about your roi de Prusse? Hippolyte laughed as if ashamed of laughing. Oh, it is nothing. I only wish to say—' He wanted to repeat a joke he had heard in Vienna, 
and which he had been trying all that evening to get in. I only wish to say that we are wrong to fight poor Le Roi de Prusse. Boris smiled circumspectly, so that it might be taken as ironical or appreciative according to the way the joke was received. Everybody laughed. "'Your joke is too bad. It's witty, but unjust,' said Anna Pavlovna, shaking her little shriveled finger at him. "'We are not fighting pour la voix de Prusse, but for right principles. Oh, that wicked principle eat!' she said. The conversation did not flag all evening, and turned chiefly on the political news. It became particularly animated toward the end of the evening, when the rewards bestowed by the Emperor were mentioned. "'You know, N. N. received a snuff-box with the portrait last year,' said the man of profound intellect. "'Why shouldn't S. S. get the same distinction?' "'Pardon me. A snuff-box with the Emperor's portrait is a reward but not a distinction.' said the diplomatist, a gift, rather. "'There are precedents. I may mention Schwarzenberg.' "'It is impossible,' replied another. "'Will you bet? The ribbon of the order is a different matter.' When everybody rose to go, Elaine, who had spoken very little all the evening, again turned to Boris, asking him in a tone of caressing significant command to come to her on Tuesday. "'It is of great importance to me,' she said turning with a smile toward Anna Pavlovna, and Anna Pavlovna, with the same sad smile with which she spoke of her exalted patroness, supported Elaine's wish. It seemed as if from some words Boris had spoken that evening about the Prussian army, Elaine had suddenly found it necessary to see him. She seemed to promise to explain that necessity to him when he came on Tuesday. But on Tuesday evening, having come to Elaine's splendid salon, Boris received no clear explanation of why it had been necessary for him to come. There were other guests, and the Countess talked a little to him, and only as he kissed her hand on taking leave said unexpectedly and in a whisper, with a strangely unsmiling face, "'Come to dinner tomorrow, in the evening. You must come. Come!' During that stay in Petersburg Boris became an intimate in the Countess' house. End of Book 5, Chapter 7。Book 5, Chapter 8 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 5, Chapter 8 The war was flaming up and nearing the Russian frontier. Everywhere one heard curses on Bonaparte, the enemy of mankind. Militiamen and recruits were being enrolled in the villages, and from the seat of war came contradictory news, false as usual and therefore variously interpreted. The life of old Prince Bolkonsky, Prince Andrew, and Princess Mary had greatly changed since 1805. In 1806, the old prince was made one of the eight commanders-in-chief then appointed to supervise the enrollment decreed throughout Russia. Despite the weakness of age, which had become particularly noticeable since the time when he thought his son had been killed, he did not think it right to refuse a duty to which he had been appointed by the emperor himself, and this fresh opportunity for action gave him new energy and strength. He was continually travelling through the three provinces entrusted to him 
was pedantic in the fulfillment of his duties, severe to cruel with his subordinates, and went into everything down to the minutest details himself. Princess Mary had ceased taking lessons in mathematics from her father, and when the old prince was at home, went to his study with the wet-nurse and little Prince Nicholas, as his grandfather called him. The baby Prince Nicholas lived with his wet-nurse and nurse Savishna in the late princess rooms, and Princess Mary spent most of the day in the nursery, taking a mother's place to her little nephew as best she could. Mademoiselle Bourienne, too, seemed passionately fond of the boy, and Princess Mary often deprived herself to give her friend the pleasure of dandling the little angel, as she called her nephew, and playing with him. Near the altar of the church at Bald Hills there was a chapel over the tomb of the little princess, and in this chapel was a marble monument brought from Italy, representing an angel with outspread wings ready to fly upwards. The angel's upper lip was slightly raised as though about to smile, and once on coming out of the chapel, Prince Andrew and Princess Mary admitted to one another that the angel's face reminded them strangely of the little princess. But what was still stranger, though of this Prince Andrew said nothing to his sister, was that in the expression the sculptor had happened to give the angel's face, Prince Andrew read the same mild reproach he had read on the face of his dead wife. Ah, uh, why have you done this to me?" Soon after Prince Andrew's return, the old prince made over to him a large estate, Bogucharovo, about twenty-five miles from Bald Hills. Partly because of the depressing memories associated with Bald Hills, partly because Prince Andrew did not always feel equal to bearing with his father's peculiarities, and partly because he needed solitude, Prince Andrew made use of Bogucharovo, began building and spent most of his time there. After the Austerlitz campaign, Prince Andrew had firmly resolved not to continue his military service, and when the war recommenced and everybody had to serve, he took a post under his father in the recruitment, so as to avoid active service. The old prince and his son seemed to have changed roles since the campaign of 1805. The old man, roused by activity, expected the best results from the new campaign, while Prince Andrew, on the contrary, taking no part in the war and secretly regretting this, saw only the dark side. On February 26, 1807, the old prince set off on one of his circuits. Prince Andrew remained at Bald Hills as usual during his father's absence. Little Nicholas had been unwell for four days. The coachman who had driven the old prince to town returned bringing papers and letters for Prince Andrew. Not finding the young prince in his study, the valet went with the letters to Princess Mary's apartments, but did not find him there. He was told that the prince had gone to the nursery. "'If you please, Your Excellency, Petrusha has brought some papers,' said one of the nursemaids to Prince Andrew, who was sitting on a child's little chair, while frowning and with trembling hands, he poured drops from a medicine-bottle into a wine-glass half full of water. "'What is it?' he said crossly, and his hand shaking unintentionally, he poured too many drops into the glass. He threw the mixture onto the floor and asked for some more water. The maid brought it. There were in the room a child's cot, two boxes, two armchairs, a table, a child's table, and the little chair on which Prince Andrew was sitting. The curtains were drawn and a single candle was burning on the table, screened by a bound music-book so that the light did not fall on the cot. 
My dear, said Princess Mary, addressing her brother from beside the cot where she was standing, better wait a bit. Later. Oh, leave off! You always talk nonsense and keep putting things off, and this is what comes of it," said Prince Andrew in an exasperated whisper, evidently meaning to wound his sister. "'My dear, really, it's better not to wake him. He's asleep,' said the princess in a tone of entreaty. Prince Andrew got up and went on tiptoe up to the little bed, wine-glass in hand. "'Perhaps we'd really better not wake him,' he said, hesitating. "'As you please. Really, I think so. But as you please,' said Princess Mary, evidently intimidated and confused that her opinion had prevailed. She drew her brother's attention to the maid who was calling him in a whisper. It was the second night that neither of them had slept, watching the boy who was in a high fever. These last days, mistrusting their household doctor, and expecting another from whom they had sent to town, they had been trying first one remedy and then another. Worn out by sleeplessness and anxiety, they threw their burden of sorrow on one another, and reproached and disputed with each other. "'Petrusha has come with papers from your father,' whispered the maid. Prince Andrew went out. "'Devil take them!' he muttered and after listening to the verbal instructions his father had sent, and taking the correspondence and his father's letter, he returned to the nursery. "'Well?' he asked. "'Still the same. Wait, for heaven's sake. Karl Ivanitch always says that sleep is more important than anything,' whispered Princess Mary with a sigh. Prince Andrew went up to the child and felt him. He was burning hot. "'Confound you and your Karl Ivanitch!' He took the glass with the drops and again went up to the cot. "'Andrew, don't,' said Princess Mary. But he scowled at her angrily, though also with suffering in his eyes, and stooped glass in hand over the infant. "'But I wish it,' he said. "'I beg you, give it him!' Princess Mary shrugged her shoulders, but took the glass submissively and calling the nurse began giving the medicine. The child screamed hoarsely. Prince Andrew winced and, clutching his head, went out and sat down on a sofa in the next room. He still had all the letters in his hand. Opening them mechanically, he began reading. The old prince, now and then using abbreviations, wrote in his large elongated hand on blue paper as follows. "'Have just this moment received by special messenger very joyful news, if it's not false.' Benningson seems to have obtained a complete victory over Bonaparte at Eylau. In Petersburg everyone is rejoicing, and the rewards sent to the army are innumerable. Though he is a German, I congratulate him. I can't make out what the commander at Korchevo, a certain Kandrakov, is up to. Till now the additional men and provisions have not arrived. Gallop off to him at once, and say I'll have his head off if everything is not here in a week." have received another letter about the prusich Elau battle from Potenka. He took part in it, and it's all true. When mischief-makers don't meddle, even a German beats Bonaparte. He is said to be fleeing in great disorder. Mind you, gallop off to Korchevo without delay and carry out instructions." Prince Andrew sighed and broke the seal of another envelope. It was a closely written letter of two sheets from Belieben. He folded it up without reading it, and re-read his father's letter, ending with the words, "'Gallop off to Korchevo and carry out instructions!' 
No, pardon me, I won't go now till the child is better," thought he, going to the door and looking into the nursery. Princess Mary was still standing by the cot, gently rocking the baby. Ah, yes, and what else did he say that's unpleasant? thought Prince Andrew, recalling his father's letter. Yes, we have gained a victory over Bonaparte, just when I'm not serving. Yes, yes, he's always poking fun at me. Ah, well, let him. And he began reading Belieben's letter, which was written in French. He read without understanding half of it, read only to forget, if but for a moment, what he had too long been thinking of so painfully to the exclusion of all else. End of Book Five, Chapter Eight. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.